Well, good morning. My name is Derek, one of the pastors here, and this is a Bible. And you have a Bible, so grab it. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, you can use your phone. Uh, that works too. Uh, or there's a, a Bible in the seat in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take it home with you. So around the world, roughly 1.9 billion people are Muslim. Roughly. Uh, 1.1 billion are secular or no religion, 1.1 billion are Hindu, 506 million are Buddhist, 14.7 million are Jews, 2.2 billion claim to be Christians. Now, if we're honest, within that number, that's not 2.2 people that are billion people that are actually saved. That includes denominations um, and groups that we would say don't believe in the one true gospel, uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, many others, many within, you know, uh, what looks like evangelical Christianity that don't really believe the right things, right? And so looking at all those people, is it arrogant for us as Bible-believing Christians to look at them and say, you're wrong? We have the truth that you don't have. Is it arrogant to tell a Muslim friend or a Mormon friend your religion's going to fail you ultimately in the end, and I have the answer, right? Our culture tells us basically, right, keep your religion to yourself. It also is telling us uh, you can believe whatever you want, right? All roads lead to heaven, that kind of thing. But is that true? I've heard this from, from Christians, maybe, um, of, you know, if, if somebody genuinely believes whatever they believe, as long as their faith is real and genuine, it's good enough. So a Muslim who is really committed to their Muslim religion, God will honor that. Or a Mormon really committed to their Mormon religion, God will honor their faithfulness to whatever they believe, even if it's not accurate. Is that true? How are we supposed to think and how are we supposed to behave in response to what we think? The passage we're looking at in Romans 10, so turn there, Romans 10, today really is kind of a line in the sand. It's one of those, maybe you did this when you were a kid, you know, you draw the line in the dirt, like if you're on my side, crossover, you know, or there's cartoons and movies all the time. This is kind of one of those lines in the sand, and on one side are those who are truly saved, right, those who are going to heaven, and on the other side are those who aren't yet saved, right? And, and I do want to be careful of, it's not a line of, of believers versus non-believers, because when we understand the gospel, the non-believers are, are victims of the enemy, and, and our job is to go on a rescue mission to this side and drag them across the line to our side. But what is that line, right? What is the line of truly saved or not? And so again, this is what we're talking about today. How should we think? How should we believe? How should we behave in light of what we think and believe? Uh, last week, we, we talked about God's sovereignty. If you're here and you have not yet uh, understood the gospel or placed your faith in Jesus as Lord, I'll tell you this, God in his sovereignty brought you here today. This is maybe one of the best passages just to, to articulate the gospel and lay it out clearly of what is required for salvation. Now, context, Romans 9, we looked at, Paul is talking a lot about his Jewish brothers and sisters, right? Paul was a Jew. He was an Israelite. Uh, descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and down the line. And what he shared with us was his lament that not all Jews, not all Israelites are going to be saved because they didn't have right belief. So, and it broke his heart, it, right? It's not anti-Semitic. It broke his heart. He said, I would even go to hell 
so that the rest of my brothers and sisters could go to heaven. But it doesn't work that way. His heart was broken for the lost. And so we saw that God chooses some to be saved, some Jews, but not all, some Gentiles, but not all, to be saved. And so he's picking up on that same theme here in Romans 10, where there's some, of, uh, specifically Jews, who historically, they had the right belief, right? They had the prophets, they had the scriptures. By the way, our Old Testament, that's what the Jews used as their scriptures, right? And still do if, if they do it right. Um, but they had accurate belief. The problem was when Jesus came, he completed that and they rejected him. And so Paul, his heart is broken for them. And because, just because this is really talking about the Jewish religion doesn't mean it doesn't apply to all the others. It really is, is relevant to all other faiths or, or lack of faiths. So we're going to start in Romans 10, 1 through 4, and answering the question, why aren't all saved? It says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I like the way he starts this. He starts it kind of the same way he did at the beginning of chapter 9, where he says, my heart is broken, right? My heart's desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved. So, so those of us who are truly saved on this side of the line, we look at the, the unsaved over here, and again, sometimes we as the church put up walls and go, oh, stay away from... No, our heart's desire is that they are saved, and hopefully that leads to action. More on that next week. But what is the issue? It says here, verse 2, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. A zeal. There's the answer to that question, right? Does, gen, or does, does genuine faith in something, will that be good enough, even if it's not true? He's saying no. And he's looking at his, his Jewish brothers and sisters, and he says they have a zeal. I mean, they were really passionate about God. Paul himself, before he got saved, uh, he was a, a Pharisee, and he was traveling around in the name of God, capturing Christians and putting them in prison. He was zealous for what he believed to be the one true God. Then he meets Jesus, right, on the road. Jesus appears to him. And he says, uh, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Oh, no, sorry, right? And, and adjusted, but he truly believed he was right. He says, they have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. And again, that, that goes anywhere. There's a lot of Muslims out there. They genuinely believe what they believe. Their faith is in Allah, and, and they're living that way. Or go down any other faith. They genuinely believe it. The problem is, he says, it's not according to knowledge. Genuine zeal for a belief that is not true will ultimately and eternally fail. That's hard, right? I, I mean, that's hard. We live in a world that, you know, don't push your beliefs. Don't Saying that, right, we have to say it with, with grace, with gentleness, but that's, that's the truth. Genuine zeal is not enough if it's not according to knowledge. Now, real quick, we have to define our authority for truth. Uh, I got to speak at Sierra Lutheran this week, and this was one of the things we started with. Is who's our authority? Where does our authority come from? And, of course, we would say the authority comes from God's word, right? It doesn't come from ourselves. It doesn't come from culture. 
It, it doesn't come from something else. It comes from what God's word says. So this is our authority, which really is freeing because my job as a pastor, right, and, and ours in life, what does this say? What does it mean? And, and then we can share that. This is the authority. And so I'm not hopefully arrogant. I, I mean, a lot of Christians have expressed their faith arrogantly, right? But w- we can stand on the truth because God's word, we can put it on his shoulders. No, God said, <laughs> right? He says this is the one way. This is the truth. And, and everybody agrees there are some things that are true, and some things that are not. And so here, God is going to define the truth, and we're going to see really three things that the unsaved person is ignorant about that the saved person must know and accept. There's that line. Now, the word ignorant, uh, that's not a put-down, right? An ignorant person, they just don't know something, right? Naive, that, that word is kind of a, a, a dig at the other person. But they're, they're ignorant. Again, not stupid, uninformed. They need to know these things. And what's the first one? The first one is the truth of God's righteousness and what that righteousness requires. You see this in in verses 2 and 3. They have a truth not according to knowledge. What are they ignorant of? Verse 3, they're ignorant of the righteousness of God. Why? Because they're seeking to establish their own. That's the first thing right there, is that we cannot be right with God on our own merit. It is impossible for anyone to be right with God on their own merit. And this goes to every religion in the world. Every religion in the world tells you what to do. And go walk on the street, grab some random stranger and say, do you think there's a heaven? Many will say yes. You say, are you going there? Most will say yes. You'll say, why? Because I'm a pretty good person. Right? Most people, that's where they land. And every religion tells you what to do. They're ignorant of the real truth of what God's righteousness requires, perfect obedience or faith in Jesus. You realize that uh, there's quite possibly two ways to be saved? Whoa. What is he saying? There might be two ways to be saved. Look at uh, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So the first way to be saved is to, to, to follow the law perfectly, 100%. Problem is nobody can do that. <laughs> So, so when Moses received the law, I mean, it was that. You can be right with God by following this perfectly. But nobody ever could. Nobody ever would. And so they had the sacrificial system put in to take care of the, when they would fail. So the problem was, right, nobody can do it. So Jesus came, and he fulfilled it perfectly. He did fulfill the law perfectly and then died for our sins so that we could be saved. And so the law is done. That's verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus fulfilled the law by obeying it perfectly, and through his death and resurrection makes our righteousness possible. That's the first thing that somebody needs to understand to go from this side, unsaved, to this side, saved. I can't do it in my own strength. It's really been the whole theme of the book so far, right? By faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Verses 6 through 8 uh, Paul is actually quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. And he says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near to you in your mouth 
and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What in the world? <laughs> That's, if you just were reading through, right, in your devotional some morning, read through, you'd probably just skip over that. That's weird. Here's what he's saying. What is our source of truth? Back to the question I asked before. What is our source of truth? Some will say, well, we need to go to heaven. We need to go straight to God, whatever. Some mystical experience, a vision. Bring Christ down and ask him. Well, the problem is he already came from there and revealed himself to the world. Or should we go down to the abyss, down to the place of the dead, and bring Christ up and, and ask him there? Well, no, because he's not there. He rose from the dead. So we don't need, and he lands on it, the word. We need the word. And we have the word of faith that, that is being preached. We don't need anything else. This is big, right? Uh, again, not to pick on Mormons today, but they have Joseph Smith, right? An angel appeared to him and had these magical golden tablets with a new word that nobody else ever saw. And then those tablets were brought back up into heaven by that angel. Right here, these, so you, you don't need that. We already have his word, right? Or Eastern religions, the, the meditation, Right, to empty yourself, to, to find some, some more spiritual depth. You say, no, not that. Why? Because the truth is found in the word. And he lays that out, and then he's going to make it very clear. Here's what the truth is. The word of faith, the gospel, the good news. What is that good news? And he's going to give us two things. For salvation, a person must fully accept both the person and the work of Jesus Christ. For salvation... A person must fully accept both the person and the work of Jesus. Verse 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is the verse I go to every single time to describe how somebody is saved. Right? When I talk to somebody that, that wants to get baptized, this is where I go. Right? Or they say, I, I'm not sure if I'm saved or not. And I open to this one. And I said, you read it and let's talk about it. These are the best verses really to clearly draw that line between saved and unsaved. So who is Jesus? Right? First thing we already saw, you need to understand that you can't be right with God on your own merit. That's the first thing. Second thing, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's the first question. Somebody says they're saved, right? Who is Jesus? Ask them. It all comes down to the person of Jesus. And who is he? Verse, verse 9. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? There's a couple, there's actually two things even within that word. But the Jewish person hearing this, reading this, would understand exactly what that means. That Jesus is God incarnate. So we must believe that Jesus is deity. That's where we get into the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three separate persons, but one essence and all God. Good luck understanding that. You know, at least God is still a mystery in, in some aspects there. But Jesus is God, right? Jesus, when he was talking to people uh, and they said, you know, you're making yourself out better than Abraham or whatever. And, and he turns and says, before Abraham was, I am. Well, I am, that's God's personal name, Yahweh, that he gave to Moses, right? Yahweh means I am that I am. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and they tried to kill him right then, and he snuck through. They knew he was claiming to be God. We saw this earlier, uh, like two chapters ago. Jesus is God. So, Jesus is the incarnation of the eternal creator God, 
and must be master of our lives. So there's a second part to that word, Lord, meaning Jesus is God, God in flesh, God incarnate, right? Remember when Jesus was born? You read it in uh, Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke, right? He was called Emmanuel. That word means God with us. That's his name, God with us. But then Lord means master as well. So I think there's many who would say, I believe that Jesus is God. I believe he went to the cross. Is he Lord of your life? Nope, I'm Lord of my life. Nope, I want to be in charge. So there's that other part of that word, Lord. Is he master of your life? We have to confess him as Lord, the one in charge. Again, if you've watched baptisms, this is one of the questions I ask almost everybody. Are you willing, do you believe the right things? And are you willing for Jesus to be in charge? And the answer is yes. Are you willing to go wherever he says? Are you willing to say yes before you know what he tells you to do? That's Lord. That's Lord. His deity and his master of ourselves. This is central. This is not a secondary doctrine. This isn't one of those things where uh, you can believe what you want about Jesus' person. No, you have to believe he is God in flesh. Uh, and there's been debates on this for 2,000 years, right? And most major religions believe in Jesus. Did you know that? Most major religions have Jesus as some kind of figure. The, the Hindu, Jesus is one incarnation of the impersonal Brahman, right? Jesus is something there. Uh, Muslims. Jesus is a prophet. He, he, he is a prophet. So a lot, they all have Jesus somewhere in there. But for us, he is God. And here's the third thing, right? So first, we can't get right with God in our own merit. Second, Jesus is God in flesh and Lord of my life. Third, the work of Jesus. What did he do? The believer must accept that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Raised him from the dead. This is a bodily resurrection. When Jesus died, it was a real death. His body was put in a tomb. Three days later, that body was no longer in the tomb because it was up walking around. Glorified body, same body though. This isn't some Jesus spiritually rose. Right? We live in a materialistic day and age, and I don't mean materialism as in seeking after stuff, although it's that too, but, but materialism as in the, uh, the main source of truth is nature. And that comes from Darwinism, right? Uh, you can only believe what you can see and, and test and all those things, meaning with that worldview, there aren't miracles. And in the American church for decades and decades, it's tried to creep in, get rid of the miracles, right? So read God's word, get rid of the miracles, and so you land on Jesus' resurrection, Eh, not a big deal. It's a huge deal. <laughs> it is a miracle. It is God breaking into nature and doing something that can't be done. Jesus bodily rose from the dead. We have to believe that. It's not okay to go, eh, maybe it was just a spiritual resurrection. Nope. It was a bodily resurrection. And that's our hope. Our hope is that he rose, and our hope is that someday we will rise too. And this belief is a cooperation with our entire being. Right? Our mind and our heart. It's not just intellect, right? He says here, with our heart. So there are people, I believe, that have an understanding intellectually of these things, but have never really accepted it and made him Lord of their lives. 
That's the last step. Uh, James, Jesus' half-brother, would write, uh, you, you have right belief? Good for you. The demons also believe and shudder. The demons know who Jesus was. The demons know all those things, right? And they shudder. So simple intellectual right belief is not enough. There is a giving ourselves to him that he is our Lord. And it's a cooperation, again, with our whole self. What's the other aspect of this? It says, confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. So we believe it, but then there's an, there's an outward piece. And how do we normally recognize that outward piece? Baptism. Right? Baptism is the first way where we proclaim to others, Jesus is Lord of my life. And then hopefully after that, it's an ongoing thing. Maybe you've heard this. You know, my faith is, is, is personal. I don't want to talk about my faith. It's just me and God. Well, here's the truth. Your faith is very, very personal, but it's not supposed to be private. Our faith is not supposed to be private. We're told here to confess with your mouth. Make clear, right, with your whole life, Jesus is Lord of my life. If we're trying to hide it, oh, there's something off there. There really is, right? If you've placed your faith in him and you say, I don't want to get baptized because I don't want to get up in front of people, you got to check that, right? Because getting, we can do it privately and, and video it, whatever. I mean, there's ways to do that, right? I understand stage fright, but there's an aspect of our faith that we tell everyone else, Jesus is Lord of my life. We confess with our mouth. This is true. This is accurate. This is the only true and accurate faith. And it, there's the line right there, right? How do you move from one side to the other? Jesus died on the cross. Jesus, God in flesh, rose from the dead. I place my faith in him. I believe that and accept him as Lord of my life. Verse 11. It says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I really like that. Meaning, every other faith, they will be put to shame. Here's what that means. The the, the Muslim, the Mormon, the Jehovah Witness, go down the list of any other faith. In the end, they will stand before God, and it won't be good enough. They will be put to shame. But I genuinely believed in whatever. It was not according to knowledge. Judged for your sin, condemned to hell for eternity. That's horrible. That, that's put to shame. Those who place their faith in Jesus will stand before God and will not be put to shame. Right? It, it, it's, maybe you've heard this, you're going to get to the pearly gates. And you say, why should I let you in? Because of Jesus. Right? Jesus died for me. He's Lord of my life. That's the only way. Again, our culture doesn't like this. This is really hard that there's only one way. But remember Jesus, the night before he went to the cross, where he was sweating drops of blood? I mean, he was anxious. He knew what he was going to go through. And what did he ask the Father? He said, Father, if there is any other way, can we do that? I mean, it gives me chills. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Let's do it a different way. This is going to be horrible for me. And what happened? The father responded, there is no other way. This is, this is what we're doing. Meaning, if that was the only way and Jesus went to the cross, do you think after that God would say, and then there's some other ways too? No, it's the only way. And Jesus went to the cross because it was the only way. And he suffered in a way we can't even imagine because it was the only way. It is not ignorant to claim the truth. Is it ignorant to tell somebody, you know, you have to breathe air to live? 
No, that's just a basic truth, right? Right? Is it arrogant to tell somebody they can't fly? No. I, I met a guy at uh, Starbucks years ago, and we were sitting there. I think I've shared this story before. Um, and he was one of those that, you know, all truth is relative. I said, really? What color is my shirt? Right? It's, it's blue. Well, that's a matter of perspective and whatever. Okay. Let's go a little bit deeper. You're up on a cliff, right? You're up there with your best friend, and your best friend is, is just dressed like this, no parachute, no nothing. Like, I think I can fly. And he goes running toward the cliff. What are you going to do? Your truth is your truth. You're just going to let him jump off and hit the ground? He didn't know. Uh, that was too hard for him. He's like, well, I, uh, um. right. <laughs> There's some things that are absolutely true. And here, the absolute truth is that Jesus is the only way. There's that line in the sand. Now, again, people share this arrogantly, right? This can be shared ungraciously, but this is the truth. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is so beautiful. It's not based on your heritage. It's not based on where you live. It's not based on are you uh, American or anything else. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Have you called on the name of the Lord? Do you believe the things that I laid out right there, that scripture lays out? And have you called on him? Lord, save me. Right? That's that final piece of confessing it. You know, uh, we've always talked about, probably you have growing up, have you prayed the prayer of salvation? Well, the Bible actually never tells us, you know, there's this magic prayer, and then you're, you're saved. But there is an aspect here of calling on him. God, I am a sinner. I need you. I recognize that I can't do this on my own. I need you. I love you. Will you come and save me? Call on the name of the Lord. Have you done this? And here's the great news. If we do this, we're saved forever. This then leads us to worship. Why do we gather on Sundays? Part of it is to hear God's word, absolutely. A big part of it is that we get to worship together. This is what we're supposed to do, that we're saved, we're made right with God, we're adopted into his family, and then we worship. We glorify him, and we're going to be doing that forever and ever and ever. Now, not singing, you might be like, I don't want to sing forever. You know, it's not going to be an eternal church service, hopefully. Um, it's not. But we get to be with him forever, and that should lead us to worship now because of what he's done. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to continue to worship. And if you're here, you say, I'm not sure I've called on the name of the Lord. Or maybe you, you heard that laid out and said, this is the first time I've fully understood the gospel. I'm going to be in the back right. Come talk to me. Come talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. Father, thank you. Um, thank you for making your words so, so clear in this. You really uh, have left no room for doubt. There are some things that are gray areas, absolutely. This is not one of them. And God, we thank you for making this so clear that there's not a mystery with salvation anymore. We know that our righteousness is only because of Jesus, that you died on the cross and you rose from the dead. And God, I also thank you that, that after that point of salvation, you want to do great things in and through us. God, you want to give us an abundant life, not of prosperity necessarily, but, but a life of joy and of peace and of purpose. So God, we love you. Um, I ask if there's anybody in the room here who has not confessed you as Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. I also ask, give us a name. 
Each of us here that has done this, that, that have you as our Lord and Savior, maybe there's somebody in our life that you have placed there that they need to hear this. Got it, and, and you're, you're setting it up. You're setting it up for us to share that with them. Give somebody in here, give a, a bunch of us a name of somebody that needs to hear this truth in grace and love. In Jesus' name, amen.